Hi, this is Dr. Carl Goldcamp. If you're interested in learning about the ketogenic diet like I was, to save my own life, then this is probably the podcast for you. Eight years ago, I knew nothing about it. Six years ago, it saved my life. Three years ago, I started researching and talking with some of the authorities in the field and attending medical conferences about this to understand why and how keto so dramatically changed my and my wife's Judy's lives. The purpose of this podcast is to share our journey of discoveries with you in understanding how keto is so effective in improving so many different conditions from obesity, epilepsy, diabetes, infertility, MS, Alzheimer's, heart disease, to name a few. So take a step away from all the hype you've probably heard and roll up your sleeves with me and join me weekly to explore this living miracle that anyone can access. We'll talk science, we'll talk food. We'll explore its history and evolution to today, which is that the sheer wonder of the ketogenic way of eating has changed untold number of lives, unlike anything before it. And in case I forget to mention it, please join our Facebook group, Keto Naturopath. Welcome back, everybody, for another episode of Keto Naturopath. Today we have um, a very exciting interview. I saw Dr. Palmer, um, Christopher Palmer, Chris, present down at Low Carb USA at uh, West Palm oh, a couple months ago. And in my view, uh, he's at the an uncomfortable edge that he's creating his expertise. And I say uncomfortable edge because he works in psychiatry and there's greater risks there than just, and I don't mean pejorative here, of helping people lose weight and so on and so forth. So, Chris, I'm so glad you could make some time to be on this. This is really wonderful. Well, thank you, Carl, for having me. I'm excited to be here. So, I could actually go through your talk, but I don't want to, but I have a number of slides I want to reference. I want to say, as we get into basically treating schizophrenia and bipolar and your experience uh, that you've nuanced out, and I'm, I'm so impressed, is that in the uh, follow-up panel discussion, you brought up a name I hadn't heard for a while. That was Nora Lokow and her work. And that's such an interesting overlap of her, you know, the whole PET scan of addiction and the, you know, the uh, obesity brain versus the, uh, the, we'll call it addict brain, how the similarities there. And you, through the ketogenic side of things, or actually not even that, looked at similarities of blood sugar, dysglycemias, uh, cerebral and not metabolic, as you would say, uh, bipolar and schizophrenia. So there's an overlap. Just start with there. I throw that out and I'm going, that's pretty fascinating. In one level, it's, it's about receptor differences. Hers is about dopamine, et cetera. And you're looking at it from the ketogenic approach about, wait a minute, you know, we're, we're kind of not far off from epilepsy here in terms of needing a therapeutic, medically therapeutic, classic ketogenic diet approach if we're going to make some headway. Yeah, no. So it's interesting that you uh, start with Nora Volkoff. So for any of your listeners who don't know who she is, she is currently the director of the National Institute of Drug Abuse. So she is a extraordinarily well-known, prominent, renowned researcher in the addiction field. Her One of the most important contributions she made was showing that um, animals and people, when they eat foods, certain types of foods, high in carbohydrate and high in fat, 
the combination of the two, it seems to be the sweet spot, and that those foods activate the exact same reward pathways that addictive substances activate. And that in fact, you know, depending on how you look at it, it could support an argument that some foods might be quote unquote addictive. And that's a somewhat controversial stance still in the academic field. But um, some people absolutely firmly believe that certain foods are addictive. Or alternatively, you could look at some of her research as showing that addictive substances hijack the normal reward centers in our brain. Mm -hmm. So our brains have normal reward centers focused on getting food, especially good tasting food, having sex, doing other things like that that are normally very rewarding. And the addictive substances hijack that same uh, machinery in the brain. Mm-hmm. The, the really interesting stuff that's been happening lately, both in her own work, specifically as it relates to alcohol use, mm-hmm. uh, but also a, a, an entire field of research happening in the mental health field, is that increasingly we are finding abnormalities in metabolism in the brain of people with chronic mental illness. And also her work showed in people who are heavy drinkers or as most people refer to as alcoholic. Mm -hmm. And so what happens is that when people drink alcohol, some of that alcohol is actually turned in to a ketone body Mm -hmm. that ends up in the brain cells and gets used by those brain cells. And when people end up drinking chronically, when they drink on a daily basis and heavy amounts, their brains actually make adaptations. And part of the adaptation is to actually becoming somewhat insulin resistant or glucose resistant. It starts to rely on the alcohol as a source of fuel. And in doing so, it ends up compromising its ability to use glucose as a source of fuel. And so what she found is that people who are chronic alcoholics, their brains aren't producing as much energy as people who are not heavy drinkers. And so part of that thinking goes along the lines of, well, maybe the reason they can't seem to get themselves to stop drinking is because their brains are actually kind of craving energy, mm-hmm. which is a normal thing. And the only way that they've been able to figure out to get that energy supply to their brain cells is to drink alcohol. So she, along with the National Institute of Alcoholism and Alcohol Abuse, are actually now doing a clinical trial of the ketogenic diet in alcoholics. Wow. And they are pairing that with brain scans, both before and after. They're doing all sorts of clinical measures, and they're trying to see if the ketogenic diet can help people both withdraw from alcohol and also possibly if uh, supplying their brain with ketone bodies, if that can reduce some of their cravings for alcohol and maybe help them achieve longer-term abstinence. That's fascinating. It's fascinating. It, it reminds me of, and I think I might have sent you the link, there was an MD, he's kind of a crazy guy, but he would do all these YouTubes 
on saying something similar to that, far less and more simplistic. But he his whole thing was about uh, caprylic acid triglyceride, and that's how you're going to rescue the brain. And so he was, I don't know if he got right down to the ketone level. I mean, he knew that A, A was helping B and B helps uh, the alcoholic brain, and he was an ex-alcoholic, but that was his whole thing, was, you know, you need to have, and he had a little bottle of of C8, which I think is a big deal too, but his whole thing, and he was on it so much, it got to be kind of crazy, but he had a truth wrapped up in his, his uh, lack of a better word, goofiness of presenting it. Does that ring true to you? I mean, so C8 goes right into, you know, making ketones, all three of them. Um, does that sound reasonable or does it sound like, well, he was a crazy guy, but there was a little bit of truth there, <laughs> you know? So honestly, it is a, that's a big multi-million dollar question right now because the study that they're doing is a multi-million dollar study. Yeah. And um, I think that there is reason to believe that in fact, increasing ketones as a source of fuel to the brain may in fact um, help some people with alcoholism. And so I think he, certainly that is um, a reasonable theory yeah. and, it, and it's worth pursuing. I think one of the challenges, you know, the challenge in medicine across the board, yeah. we have all sorts of theories that look good on paper, that sound good, that, and, and, but when the rubber hits the road, we really need to know, does this actually help real people? Um, does it come with side effects? Does it come with risks that maybe end up outweighing the benefit. And so, you know, I, so I think that theory about C8 possibly being helpful to people with alcoholism, mm -hmm. I know that, I know that other groups are looking into possibly even using ketone esters, mm -hmm. just going, just going straight to ketones. Are, are those all worthwhile to study? Absolutely. At this point, I don't think that anyone can say for sure that they will help and in what ways they'll help. One of the, I mean, bringing up side effects and risks, one of the risks that I've certainly experienced clinically, I've experienced myself as somebody who's been on a low-carb or ketogenic diet for 20 years. Mm -hmm. I know all about this. When I am low-carbing it, when I'm in ketosis, I notice without a doubt, at least for me personally, alcohol hits me much more powerfully than when I'm not in ketosis. In other words, my threshold for how much I can drink goes down. Right. Now, if, if I don't monitor that, um, I could easily get really hammered quickly. Like mm -hmm. if, I, if I normally think I can handle three glasses of wine and be, be quote unquote okay, uh, when I'm in ketosis, two glasses of wine might do that to me, that same thing. And then if I have that third glass of wine, because I kind of know that instinctually that like, oh, well, I can handle three, I might get a lot more intoxicated or at least feel more intoxicated than I would normally be. And so I think when we're talking about using the ketogenic diet with alcoholics, that's one of the things that's kind of front and center on my mind as right. potentially one of the risks is that you know, people with alcoholism, by definition, have uh, trouble, at least at times, controlling their intake of alcohol, right. um, because that's kind of embedded in the definition of an alcoholic. And so if you start with that as a premise, and you put people on a diet that might make them even more sensitive to the effects of alcohol, 
it's just going to be important to be mindful of that as a risk. And it's going to be, um, it's going to be something to watch out for. Right. Right. Absolutely. And in, in with your group of patients, I'll say psychiatric, if I can generalize that, is that when they go home, you don't have control over those behaviors, you know, whereas somebody's into weight loss, you're, you're they, they obviously don't have control over those behaviors when they're home either, but they're less risky relative to that condition. Um, back to the alcohol for the second is what I have noticed is inadvertent. And then uh, I was talking to Dr. Lowry at the conference as well, is that when you're in ketosis, and you have alcohol. So specifically, I had some bourbon, and I had it at home. And I'm thinking, you know, I feel like my ketones have just gotten up a lot higher. I have that sort of, I won't say exactly mental clarity. There's another little feeling there. That's not necessarily bad, but there's sort of a, I'm, I'm in a higher ketosis. And I would take my ketones, and they were easily four, and I think I even got up to six or something. So they were uh, a lot higher than one who's been in ketosis for a couple of years, more than a couple of years. So I thought that, and so I mentioned that to him, I go, spirits anyway, I can testify, and of one testify that, you know, it increased my ketones, and yes to everything else was more effective, the alcohol, not more effective, they were more sensitive to the alcohol. Had you noticed that, that, you know, that it boosts, you know, there's some sort of, I don't know, switching of tracks that ketones go up to process the alcohol or something like that. I've not found anything that clarified that, but there's you know, they're vying for the same spot. And so it's either going left or going right is my sense. Do you have any? That's part of some of the literature that came out that really, I think, spurred Dr. Volkow to do some of the ketogenic research. So what we now know, and this just came out maybe in the last eight years or so. So most people thought that alcohol really couldn't be used as a source of fuel and certainly not for the brain. But what we found out within the last eight years or so is that when people consume alcohol, your liver takes that alcohol and actually converts some of it into acetone. Acetone is a ketone. That ketone goes directly to your brain Mm -hmm. and it's taken up by your brain cells and used as a fuel source. And... My guess is that when you consume alcohol, because it triggers the liver to actually make more ketone bodies, Mm -hmm. the liver probably ramps up its production of ketones across the board, including beta-hydroxybutyrate and other things that maybe aren't derived directly from alcohol, but that alcohol stimulates the process of let's ramp up some ketone production it provides a source for acetone at least. And then it, your body's also probably using fats or even carbohydrates or other things to mm-hmm. make more ketones. So yeah, I'm, not, I'm actually not surprised that ketone levels go up after consumption of alcohol. No, it's interesting. Go ahead. No, no, no. So I, I'm not aware of anybody studying that exact question though. And it, that study might be out there, but I'm not aware of anybody no. taking a group of people who are in ketosis, giving them alcohol, and then monitoring for like the next six hours what happens to their ketone levels. It would be also be interesting to know what happens to their insulin levels and yeah. their glucose levels because all of those would be important metrics. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. And I would also further differentiate for other related studies is the difference between exogenous ketones and then C8, because what I know about C, what I, I just interviewed uh, Dr. Kunain about two, a week or two ago, and we were, and he did some C8, C10 studies oh, a couple of years ago, which made me first contact him, is that you have uh, C8 producing all three ketone bodies, whereas exogenous ketones come in as BHB. You know, it's either BHB or not. <laughs> you know, use me or, you know, get rid of me. And so it, it's interesting to, if you were to compare those two, one, you'd had additive acetone uh, production, I'm thinking, but they, they both produce it, so to say. And others, you would have strictly the alcohol stimulating the liver or converting in the liver to uh, acetone as one of the three bo ketone bodies. Interesting. Wow. Um, that was it. But so she's, by the way, she is also Trotsky's granddaughter, isn't she? It's for a famous um, Nora uh, Norkov. I believe she is, yes. Amazing. She has a look. She has a look of him. I mean, he, she's, uh, she's brilliant. I watched her TED talk a couple of days ago. I was like, wow, I enjoy it. So anyway, so back to you. So you actually, you started the ketogenic diet back with, uh, per Dr. Atkins. What was your motivation for going in that direction? Just personal saying, Hey, you want to lose a few pounds and then you, you know, time has gone by and it's become this colossus that it is in terms of, or was it through epilepsy and, and all that you had heard and learned about that? Exactly. I started it with the Atkins diet. And it was, it was back, um, you know, over 20 years ago now. It was at a time when I was late 20s, early 30s. And I had just finished medical school. I was starting my residency. And I was actually a, a person, have been a person who's pretty disciplined. And I really wanted to take care of myself. I, all through medical school, you see the worst of the worst health outcomes. You see people suffering. You see people you know, dying of all sorts of maladies, some of which are preventable if they stop smoking, if they lose some weight, if they exercise. And, um, and so I was really hell-bent on taking care of myself and making sure that I was in good health. And at that point in time, low fat was where it was at. Everybody was supposed to be on a low fat diet because that's what all of the experts were telling us we should do. And so I was on a low fat diet. I was actually on a ridiculously low fat diet. I hardly consumed any fat because we were all told, at least I was told that the, the less fat, the better. Fat serves no useful purpose. It's a toxin into our bodies. Just get rid of it. On top of that, I was exercising pretty regularly and religiously. I would go to the gym at least at least four times a week for you know one and a half to two hours per time that I went to the gym oh. and so I felt like you know I'm doing a pretty good job I'm doing my best I'm trying to take care of my health and lo and behold, my cholesterol was horrible my my <laughs> My LDL was really high. My HDL was pretty much non-existent. My, my triglycerides were through the roof, over 300. And wow. my, my blood pressure was creeping up. And I kept going to my primary care doctor over and over, year after year. And he keeps calling my attention to these horrible, abysmal numbers. And... Uh, 
you know, and every time we have the conversation, I say, well, what can I do? And he's like, diet and exercise. And I'm like, what diet? Low fat. What kind of exercise? Well, you know, go to the gym, you know, run. Do what I'm doing all that. I'm doing all that. Yeah. And uh, so after a few years of that same kind of conversation, eventually he's like, you know, y- you got to go on medicine. Like this is, enough's enough. Your, your numbers are only getting worse. We need to put you on statins. We need to put you on blood pressure medicine. You're going to drop dead of a heart attack when you're in your 50s. We've got to do something. And um, I had talked to different people who were doing the Atkins diet, and I had talked to several people who claimed, and this is the way I experienced it, who claimed, like they're crazy people, that their cholesterol actually got better on the Atkins diet, that their blood pressure actually went down on that Atkins diet, that their diabetes got dramatically better on that horrible, evil Atkins diet. And for me, it really felt like an act of defiance. I basically had kind of given up. I kind of figured, well, I'm screwed. The last straw for the primary care doctor was he's like, you know, well, wait, I think I know what's going on. Does your mother have diabetes and high cholesterol? I say yes. Does your father have anything like this? Yes, he's got all of it. And he says, well, it's genetic. You're screwed. There's nothing you can do. <laughs> and and I, really, I really kind of believed that. I, I really thought, okay, I'm screwed. There's, but I've heard of these rebels doing this Atkins diet, and I'm going to give it like two months or something. And when it doesn't work, I'll go ahead and take his medicine. And so I tried the Atkins diet and I went back to my primary care doctor three months later and everything had gotten dramatically better. My LDL had plummeted, my HDL doubled, my triglycerides were less than 100. They went from over 300 to less than 100. And most importantly, in my mind, my blood pressure had plummeted in a good way. It was, it was like about 140-ish over 90, 95 went down to 130 over 110. Or actually, no, I'm sorry, 110 over like 70. Wow. Um, and so everything had gotten better. And he's like, what have you done? Like, what are you doing? And I said, I tried the Atkins diet. And he's like, well, whatever you're doing, keep doing it. It's clearly working for you. And so ever since then, I have pretty much stayed on it. I I will fully acknowledge I don't do it 100% of the time every day every of of every year. Mm-hmm. I I I almost always eat low carb or keto breakfast and lunch because eating carbohydrates slows me down and if anything makes makes me a little more lethargic and sluggish and so I don't want to feel that way during the day. But I'll go through phases, especially if I'm on vacation with family or friends and they all want to eat out and they, you know, they almost get mad at you for not participating in the meal or for not, you know, eating the same stuff they're eating. And some of those cases, I'll just go off and I'll be off the diet for a week or two or whatever. And usually I, I get motivated to get right back on it because I notice a difference in the way I feel. I notice a difference in my energy level, my motivation level. And so I've known about this for 20 years. I've pretty much stayed on it, 
come back to it. If I need to lose a few pounds, I'll come back to it. And I've pretty much maintained a healthy range of weight. My cholesterol levels have remained very good despite my horrible family history. Mm -hmm. My blood pressure has remained really good. So I've been a huge fan. I've convinced innumerable friends and families over the 20 years to do a low-carb or ketogenic diet for weight loss. And that, to me, is like easy. That's like the easy solution. It's low-hanging. I know how to motivate people. I know how to get them through the keto flu or the keto adaptation or the carb withdrawal or whatever we want to call it. I know how to do all of that. I think for me, if, you, if, if you're interested, I will share the story of my father. because Go for it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The story of my father is, is quite interesting. And um, so my father, given my genetics, was a diabetic, had high cholesterol, was overweight. And he was toward the end of his life. He was in his mid-70s and had, his diabetes had progressively worsened. And he was on over 180 units of insulin a day, 60 TID. Mm. And, his, and his blood sugars ranged anywhere from 300 to 600 on that insulin. Mm. And he had become bedridden. And it got to the point he was severely depressed. He'd been in and out of hospitals, rehab hospitals, psychiatric hospitals. He'd actually gotten a course of electroconvulsive therapy, which did not work. He had tried innumerable medications, and I spoke with several doctors who all told me, your father's dying, he will never walk again, he's dying, and you just need to like put him in a nursing home and let him die. And I kept asking them, I'm a physician, so silly me, I kept asking, what exactly is he dying of? (laughs) And they either would shrug their shoulders or they would come right out and say diabetes. And, but it was clear that he was dying. He was, his energy was failing. His nerves were no longer working. He wasn't able to walk. He wasn't able to even get up in bed on his own. And so I sat down with my dad and I had a long talk and I'm like, look, dad, if, if, if you're good on dying and you're, you feel like it's your time, I, I'll arrange for a good nursing home. And, but you're basically going to lie in bed staring at a ceiling until you go. And that's a pretty miserable kind of mm-hmm. prospect. I said, if you actually want a shot at life, here's a proposition. You can move in with me, oh. but, here's, but here are some conditions. One is you're going to have to go on a diet. It's called the Atkins diet. And I'm going to make you go on it. And it's not going to be easy. And you're not going to like it. And you're going to complain a lot. But, you know, you, you have to do it. Like, I just, I don't want any lip service from you. You're just going to have to do it. Um, the second thing, the second condition was you're going to have to exercise. He kind of laughed at me at that point and said, Chris, I can't walk. Like, what the hell are you talking about? I, I, I can't walk. I, I can barely move. I can't even sit up on my own. Right. What are you talking about exercise? And I said, don't worry. I'm not going to ask you to do anything that you can't do, but I am going to ask you to exercise and you're going to have to participate in that too. And you can complain all you want, but you're going to have to do it. And so he agreed to those terms. And I have to 
I have to share with the listeners, the first month was actually quite dangerous. He, he was a brittle diabetic in the most severe way possible. Mm-hmm. He was on, again, 180 units of insulin. His blood sugars would range 300 to 600. As soon as I switched him over to a low-carb diet, he started getting episodes of pretty serious hypoglycemia. Now, early on, the hypoglycemia might have been a blood sugar of 150. But at that blood sugar of 150, he was sweating. He was pale. He was almost passing out. So that's not something that I would recommend people just go out and wing it and try it on their own. Because it, it... Because I'm a physician, because I was there around the clock, and quite honestly, because the medical profession had given up on him, Mm -hmm. it pretty much told me he's dying, there's nothing you can do, put him in a nursing home, let him stare at a ceiling until he dies. I I kind of felt like, well, we have nothing to lose, and (laughs) um, so why why not try this brave and kind of dangerous treatment? And um. And so we did it. Within six months, he was off of insulin. Wow. And he was walking. And um, I took him to the gym. And we had this cheering section at the gym. These, <laughs> these people who would see us coming day after day, week after week. And, you know, I live in the Boston area where people aren't so friendly. They don't, you don't talk to strangers in the Boston area. And, uh, but, but strangers were coming up to us, talking to us. They were coming up and saying, oh, my God, I, I remember when you were coming in a wheelchair and you couldn't even stand up. You couldn't do anything. And look at you. Look at you now. Like, oh, my God, this is a miracle. And um, his primary care doctor actually said to me at that point, he said, you know, Chris, I don't know what the hell you're doing, but it really is nothing short of miraculous. I don't see this happen ever. Like this doesn't happen. And he, he said to me at that point, it's always stuck in my mind. He said, you really need to set up a clinic using this diet or doing this for people. Right. And my, my thought at that point was actually kind of anger and frustration. I was more like, why the hell aren't you doing this? You're, yeah, his, yeah, yeah. Yeah. you're his doctor, not me. I'm a psychiatrist for God's sakes. I'm not planning to leave psychiatry and right. go into diabetes management. And, and I shouldn't have to be doing this. I should not have had to have gone through everything I went through. He shouldn't have had to have gone through everything he went through. The medical profession should have been doing this for him all along. And yet they weren't and still to this day aren't. Right. Um, but, but I've, I've kind of witnessed the power of low carb or ketogenic diets in terms of weight loss and in terms of diabetes management. And, you know, the thing that I'm really excited and passionate about now is the mental health thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I'm happy to, I can keep talking. So just no, please inter- do, please do. <laughs> I was just looking for a pause. I mean, that's a remarkable story. That's a showstopper. That story by itself. You know, it's like, um, I have to ask, how long ago was that? Is your dad still alive and still going to the gym? And what was, what's the epilogue here, if there is an epilogue? So the epilogue sa- is a sad one, quite honestly. So okay. that, um, 
that happened um, around um, 2007, 2008. Okay, 10 years he, ago. He lived with me for three years and he got to the point where he really was dramatically better. I think I was always hoping that he would get better enough that he would want to go live independently. Right. And I think, unfortunately, being ill for so long and incapacitated, even as he got his capacity back, I think he became more dependent and, and I think felt afraid to live on his own and didn't necessarily have the drive to take care of himself in the way that most adults do. Right. And then for better or worse, that was a point in my life where I was married, had a child, and was being threatened with divorce and a custody battle and financial ruin and all of that stuff. And so I went into my own crisis mode. Right. And, right. and for better or worse, unfortunately, I, I had several conversations with my father over many months, you know, letting him know that I have my own battle to fight now. You, you're sad. You're good. <laughs> sure. You just need to keep it up. You need to stay on the diet. You need to keep exercising. Um, I had home health aides who were coming into the home still, yeah. helping him do that, getting him to the gym. And I think when I kind of backed off, and did wasn't pushing him, wasn't the taskmaster anymore. He thought it was just too nice and too convenient and too enticing to go ahead and have some pie and go ahead and have some cookies. And so he really fell off the wagon in a dramatic way and then started, you know, declining invitations to go to the gym or go work out. Oh, I'll do that another time. I'm going to watch the football game. And things deteriorated enough that, you know, I had a talk with him and let him know that, you know, I, I had my own battles to fight mm -hmm. um, and that if he really didn't want to do the program anymore, that was up to him, but that I wasn't, in I never intended to run a nursing home in my home. I intended to run a rehabilitation center. And in fact, that's what we had done over the last three years. And he was rehabilitated and he needed to, at a minimum, accept responsibility for maintaining his right, right. health and maintaining his re rehabilitation. And for better or worse, he just didn't have it in him to do it. And so things got to a point where, you know, I was going through my own shit with uh, the divorce. And so, you know, things got to a point where mm -hmm. I arranged for him to go to a nursing home. I went and had several meetings with the dietitians at this nursing home because he went into the nursing home still walking. He, mm -hmm. could walk, he could walk in a walker. He, he, was, he was fine. He had slipped back somewhat, but he was still pretty good. Mm -hmm. Had several talks with them about, can you please keep him on a low-carb diet? Um, can you please? No, no way. He's diabetic. We've got to put him on a diabetic diet, which is, of course, very high in those healthy carbohydrates. And, um, and we even talked about pies and cookies. And I said, you know, please don't give him pie and cookie because he's like, he's going to eat them all. And right. they, were, they were like, oh, no, he won't. No, he's, he's good. He'll take care of himself. And 
So within four months, he was again bedridden. Wow. It, it, it took them only four months. And, uh, and he ended up passing away within a year. Wow. And wow. that was the story. Um, and That's a hard story. It's, it is a hard story. And I'm, it's sad that it didn't have a happier ending. My father and I, I mean, part of the background of that is that my father and I never got along. Um, he, he, wow. and, he, and, he and I were bitter enemies for most of my life. And I actually left home before I finished high school. And so it, it, was, it, it was hard for me to have done what I did for him in yep. that three yep. years. I hear that. But, you know, at the end of the day, I think it's a, it's a testament that there are no quick fixes. Yep. There's no one magic bullet that, right. that if that, that people have to have the will to live, people have, people, people have to be on board with taking care of themselves and with accepting responsibility for themselves. People do sometimes have to make sacrifices. Sometimes you can look around at other people eating cake and pie and you have to say no. Right. And, um, and for better or worse, not everybody wants to do that. And, I suppose it's on some level that's their choice. Yeah. Yeah. Um to me it's a sad choice, yeah. but it's their choice nonetheless and um absolutely. You know that's not a small point. There was um so you know Dr. Tom Segfried, he's in your neck of the woods there <laughs> as yes. well. And uh, when I was interviewing him and doing some reading and talking to some of the people that he had worked with before there was a case that they had published, I think uh, Miriam had written it up in uh, Hungary, I believe it was. So they did uh, the ketogenic diet in conjunction with a number of other things. And it was a breast cancer and all these things miraculously resolved. You know, it was like a stellar story. And then uh, the woman sort of uh, disappeared. I mean, she had her own right. She just didn't come back to the clinic once she disappeared. And uh, she came back. I think it was 10 months later and stopped doing everything, you know, stopped doing the ketogenic diet, stopped doing all these things. And it all came raging back and uh, she died within a year of being clean. And um, so it speaks to, you know, we get into the technical aspect and we know that it works, but we can't quite get into the mind of the person completely with that kind of support, you know, and yeah, they need something, but it's not like, for instance, on you to, have to supply those other things or, you know, maybe a clinic could supply some of that, but it's still kind of an undefined and yet this other kind of uh, emotional support, um, psychological support that most clinicians aren't prepared to do or that's not available in that context. And so, uh, yeah, I can quickly turn around, but it's a big point. It's a big point. I wanted to ask you a quick question. When you talked about your your own diet and the carbs make you logy, I don't think you said logy, but slow. Are you saying you don't? You're like what they call zero carb or carnivore, or you're like you know I just where are you on that? Is that an issue, or it's like that's just a, a general reference? Quite honestly, I I'm all over the place, um, <laughs> depending on so so so. There are times if if I am feeling really sluggish. And if I, especially if I've been off the wagon for a little while and I feel the need to kind of get back on the wagon quickly and it, it just, I want to improve my energy level. I want to improve my mood or something else. I do tend to go more carnivore diet. Um, I tend to avoid mo- almost 
all vegetables. Every now and then I might have a pickle with dinner, like a dill pickle, but <laughs> but otherwise I'm pretty much eating meat and um, meat and eggs. I'll, I'll certainly yeah. eat eggs and um, you know coffee with cream, but it's pretty heavy on the meat and yeah. very, very light on vegetables. And I've noticed that at least for me, that does make a difference. It really, it really does seem to make a difference. At other times, I will, you know, have salads, have avocados, other things with healthy fats, with, you know, olive yeah. oil. And, um, but I've tended to lean more toward the carnivore side for better or worse. And then I'll do intermittent fasts every now and then, skip breakfast, skip a lunch, skip dinner here and there as I, as I feel like I can. And uh, if I'm feeling good, if I'm not particularly hungry, I'll go ahead and skip a meal. And I exercise a lot. I, so exercise is really important to me. And, um, and I think it's a big part of the metabolic kind of therapy and taking care of one's health. And um, I like spin classes. I cycle outside and, and I'm in Boston. I don't like to cycle in like sub-zero weathers. Right, um, right, right. But, but so in the winter, I, I tend to do indoor stuff, spin classes. I go to the gym. And then in the summer, I love to cycle outside and I run and always do some weight training, always do some kind of stretching yoga type stuff. And uh, that's always a huge thing for me is I, I notice that even if I'm completely off the diet, if I can get a really good workout in and really sweat hard and long for an hour or more, I feel so much better. That's funny. You're, you're almost speaking from the articles you've written in Psychology Today. It was it exercise and fasting linked to brain detox, among others? But yeah, no, I agree. I, I think that whole interface between muscle and blood sugar, that's what we're going to look at or without even getting into the detox aspect. Uh, is a big, big deal. And, uh, you know, it's it's easy to talk about diet, maybe not that easy, but it's harder to talk about exercise to an, a non-exercising group. You know, if, if people are grew up, you know, being high school uh, athletics, I won't say athlete, then it's easy to bring them back to that state. If they were never an exerciser, you're going, so um, what do you think about the gym? <laughs> what do you think about a walk? What do you think about, you know, exceeding that aspect. It's almost a, it's, it's almost harder than, uh, bringing in a diet. I'm sure you probably know, but it sounds like it's part of who you are, by the way. Hi, this is Dr. Goldcamp. I thought I would take a moment of your time to tell you about something that we've been working on for a long time. And that is our product of C8 keto MCT oil. How is it different and why would you even care about it? It's the highest purity you can find in the market, which is 99.7% caprylic acid triglyceride. And by the way, that's backed up by a certificate of analysis. It's not just me making up these numbers. But I think the bigger story behind our C8 MCT oil is not only that it is the most efficient way for you to create ketones naturally, and that is all three ketones, your beta-hydroxybutyrate, your acetoacetate, and your acetone. That's important. But the other part is it supports sustainably harvested palm oil. Why would you care? Because all the other C8 oil products out there, not the MCT oils, but the C8 MCT oils, some people call them ketogenic oils out there, they come from palm oil. And palm farming, specifically palm kernel farming in Southeast Asia, is decimating the rainforest there. Absolutely. 
You go on right now to Google or to YouTube and say palm oil Southeast Asia and you will be in tears at the end of 10 minutes when you see the destruction that's happening. This is not part of that. This is the exception. So it's called RSPO, Roundtable on Sustainable Palm Oil. You have to apply for it. You have to be audited by them. And it's a long, rigorous process. And it took us two years to bring this product to market. I hope you care. And I know you'll care about the efficiency in which it helps you make ketones. By the way, we don't drink this like it's a fluid. We put a little bit in our coffee. We make our mayonnaise out of it. We make uh, various salad dressings out of it when we have a salad. It's basically a, I hate to say crutch, but it's my aid to keeping me in ketosis when I want to be in ketosis. It's fast. It's long-lasting, certainly long, longer-lasting than exogenous ketones and much more holistic, as I mentioned, with all three ketones. That's about as much as I want to say. I hope you look into it. I hope you uh, take your ketones readings on a regular basis, as long with your glucose. If you do, then you really value this product. All the best, and I thought you should know.